The following contains plot spoilers, and the comments and opinions expressed herein are for entertainment and commentary purposes only and may not reflect the actual opinions of Geeks Radio or the individual hosts. So don't get mad, it's just a show. In a world where there are actually nine worlds as part of Yggdrasil, the world tree, which supports several different realms that all... You know what, just the mythology's really interesting, you should go look into it. In the meantime, this is Totally Super! Hello and welcome to Totally Super, where we review every superhero movie ever made, and sometimes we actually review superhero movies that people like. Um... <laughs> Thank you for being with us on on our. It occurs to me our our last three podcasts were what Electra and and the Crow sequels. You're welcome. Um, we are You're back. You're welcome. Yeah, we're back to to yeah. more familiar and to more be fair. We had a we had a pretty as, good as we straight. We had a pretty good straight MCU. run. Yeah, I remember. The, I remember during the first couple of years of uh, recording this that uh, I was just like, "Good lord, are we ever going to review a film that we don't like?" So I think having a few clunkers in there is fine. Yeah, yeah. So we're here. Uh, Thor, a film we were just saying before the podcast started, is nine years old, and I don't see how that could possibly be so. It's crazy. I'm actually surprised it's only nine. If you know, it's. I feel like Marvel has become ubiquitous, and yet at the same time, it seems like such a a modern thing. The idea that that this is a quarter of my life ago is is something I'm still mm-hmm. struggling to wrap my head around. Um, because it feels like yesterday, and yet it feels like it's always been there. If that makes any sense, certainly if you yeah. see what um most of these actors, especially uh watching Thor and Loki. They have aged into their parts. They look like babies here compared to what they're going they to look do. like. They look so um, young today, and both aged incredibly well, um, as has everyone in the film. Um, today, of course, we are re- reviewing Thor, um, the 2011 um, film by uh, by Kenneth Branagh, the fourth film in the. MCU, the Marvel Cinematic Universe, following Iron Man, Iron Man 2, and the Incredible Hulk. Here came Thor. Following Thor was Captain America, the Winter Soldier, or Captain America, um, uh, the first Avenger, just a couple of months before Avengers. So this is doing some of the groundwork uh, for Avengers. If you watch uh, Iron Man 2, you can see Coulson saying to Tony Stark, there's something I need to go deal with in Nevada. And he's actually making calls mm-hmm. from from what's going on in Thor to what's going on in the Iron Man 2. So this is taking place simultaneously to the second Iron Man movie. These two things are happening mm-hmm. at the same time. Uh, Thor was directed by Kenneth Branagh, produced by Kevin Feige. Uh, the story was by J. J. Michael Straczynski um, of Babylon 5 fame is, is notable there. Uh, it was released on april 7th 2011 in sydney australia then released in the united states may 6 2011 it comes in 114 minutes the budget for it was 150 million dollars which that may seem like a lot but if you for instance look at thor uh if you look at thor ragnarok uh thor ragnarok um was uh, a considerably higher um higher budget uh, Thor Ragnarok had a budget uh, of $180 million, so 30 more, and it was considered cheap compared to, let's say, the Avengers Infinity War Endgame budget, was it, which was a billion dollars. Um, mm-hmm. 
so that is that is sort of where we are. Um, I wanted to ask you, what was your first impression of Thor when you first saw it uh, so many years ago? I remember enjoying it. The uh, My first impression of it uh, was actually very similar to my impression of it on the rewatch, which was, this is a good film. It is somehow smaller than you would expect from superhero films today. Uh, you know, I think there's there's only a couple fight scenes in it. Uh, it's not uh, the, you know, a lot of the stuff that takes place on Earth happens in a very small area. Um, it, it In its own way, it kind of reminded me of what some of the superhero films that we would have had in the 80s were. Uh, and certainly if you had taken this film and uh, this film and dropped it in the middle of 1987 it would have seemed like a superhero film with the most epic scope that anyone had ever experienced. But when you compare it to, you know, Endgame or even just the first Avengers, it seems somehow smaller. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's a... There's a... We've talked before about the honest trailer of Avengers where they list the Avengers and... They said they call Thor no one's favorite superhero. I think that what's interesting about Thor is that, especially in this one, is they make him so unlikable through much of the film. And he only mm. really becomes likable when he is in the fish out of water situation. And I think that they um, they do a really good job of taking someone that you don't like and making you like him through his foibles and watching him through other people's eyes. Um, mm -hmm. What this film has that, let's say, a, a movie like Iron Man 2 doesn't quite have, or even the first Iron Man, which is it has a huge character arc for its protagonists. Uh, for instance, The Incredible Hulk. I don't think The Incredible Hulk, I don't think that Banner changes very much from the beginning of The Incredible yeah. Hulk to the end of The Incredible Hulk. Iron Man 1, Tony changes a lot in the first 30 minutes of the film and then pretty much stays Iron Man on an adventure. I would dare say that Batman, Bruce Wayne does not change very much in 1989's Batman from beginning to end. Thor is a, yeah, is a vastly, vastly different person at the end of this film mm -hmm. than he was at the beginning. And the entire in plot that sense, he really he, he undergoes him. a much yeah. more traditional hero's journey because of that. Yeah, it's, it's you know the hero. Go ahead. Go go ahead. Oh, sorry. So we are recording on a delay. Occasionally, things like that happen. Uh -huh. You were saying about the uh, about the hero's journey. Uh, yeah. So the uh. You know, the hero's journey, which is something I've referenced before. It's a mythological concept. Uh, when you think, like, 90% of adventure stories uh, are in some way a, a variation on the hero's journey. Um, but the the true, the quote-unquote truest ones uh, are ones where the hero undergoes a journey both externally, like traveling around the world, but also there needs to be an internal journey that happens. Uh and now that we're saying it, the fact that this was directed by Kenneth Branagh, who's mostly known for Shakespeare work, uh, I wonder to what degree that was a that was an important thing for him, uh, because he would certainly have an understanding of that. Uh, but I, I agree with you. Um, I don't necessarily know if they, the hero's journey that Thor goes on. Um, I love where it ends up, uh, and I I love how uh, Hemsworth 
delivers it. I think he's very sincere uh, in those in those final scenes. Um, I felt like they could have done a little bit more to flesh out that journey. Like it seemed to me like there was he went from a hole to hero just a little bit too quickly. I would have liked to see a little bit more of that. But that being said, I agree with you that the point where he started and the point where he finished internally are vastly different. Yeah, I think that that what's interesting is that the you know the idea of the hero's journey um, as uh, as the the writer Campbell um, sort of outlined is based on mythology, and you go he goes through the the hero's journey as a mythological character does. What's interesting about Thor? It's the first time we've been able to do this. That Thor is a mythological character in real life. Yeah. Uh, uh, mm-hmm. Thor is um, is based on Germanic mythology. Thor is the hammer wielding god. Uh, he has thunder, lightning, storms. They are all based on him. He does carry Mjolnir, and it's absolutely true that Thursday is based on Thor. We call Thursday Thursday because it was Thor's day, and that is mm-hmm. you know the like. So if you want to hear about Thor, you, you go Thor's influence on society is Chris Hemsworth's amazing abs, and I don't want to say anything bad about Chris Hemsworth's amazing abs, but we do have a day of the they week. They were a crucial part of this film, named after Thor. Yeah. It's not like we have Iron Man Day, although maybe we should. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, this is, <laughs> um, you can find. Uh, I, I could say I could say we could, cha- we could change Saturday through- to Stark Day. Well, and it's interesting, right? So you you go Thor, but Thor is not the only one. You know, certainly we reviewed the mask. And the mask was supposed to be the incarnation of Loki. Certainly, Loki is a name that was used in Kevin Smith's Dogma. Um, it's uh, really, really, really fun to think about the fact that if you watch Dogma, um, you have Matt Damon as Loki. And you have, um, you've watched Dogma, you have Matt Damon as Loki. He appears again in Jay and Silent the Bob reboot as Loki. And as we're going to talk about when we get to Thor Ragnarok in two weeks, um, you have Matt Damon playing Loki in a play in Thor Ragnarok. So he has played Loki. Oh my gosh, multi- I never put that together. That's times. amazing. Um, That's incredible. Um yeah, so Thor Thor is uh is a character that I first experienced in a little TV movie that I don't know if we're ever going to get around to. Um but the uh there was the Incredible Hulk TV show and then there were three TV movies, the um, return, the Incredible Hulk Returns, The Trial of the Incredible Hulk, and The Death of the Incredible Hulk. And when we were starved in the late 80s for any superhero content, I was so excited. Now, the Incredible Hulk TV show was a... Um, was a sort of an episodic TV show. Bruce Banner, in the case of the show, David Banner would walk to a town. A town had some some mean old townies doing something mean, and he just wanted to get a janitor job so he could kind of hide away and not get angry. The mean townies would do something. They would turn him into the Hulk. The Hulk would smash a car because they didn't have the budget, <coughs> then walk away until sad Hulk music as he walks away. The TV movies tried to start incorporating the Marvel Universe and the Incredible Hulk return. Well, the trial of the Incredible Hulk had Daredevil, <clears throat> and the Incredible Hulk Returns had Thor. Um, and if you watch '80s, search '80s Avengers on uh, on YouTube, they show that. And I remember seeing that, like going, "Oh my gosh, Thor has shown up! Oh, in TV, it's amazing! I'm so excited that my Marvel characters are now showing up! I can't believe it!" But I have to admit something to you, Arthur. In the comics, mm-hmm. I don't give a crap about Thor. I really don't. I was never, ever into 
Thor. I knew he had a hammer and that the hammer had powers and that I guess I knew he was the god of thunder. But that is about mm -hmm. as much as I knew or cared about Thor entirely in the comics. Um, mm -hmm. As a comic reader, do you have any connection to Thor? Have you read Thor comics and what, what is your opinion? I Over the past few years, well, I mean, again, there's uh, in my, you know, if you are examining the lifetime of Arthur Rowan as a comic book reader, there is the the pre Marvel uh, Marvel Unlimited app era and the post Marvel Unlimited app era and those two incarnations of Arthur Rowan are vastly different. Um, so I didn't before uh, Marvel Unlimited and I just started devouring comic books. Thor was not really too high on my radar either, um, you know, because it's it was by necessity. Thor is a character painted in extremely broad strokes, uh, even you know, Captain America had a lot of nuance in his early issues. I mean, and Lord, look at the way that, you know, the X-Men from day one was about using the mutant uh, plight to to deal with issues like racism and things like that. Uh, Thor just seemed very big man, destroy things with hammer and lightning. Uh, that being said, I have read a lot of the uh, Thor that has come out in the past 10 years, uh, including the incarnation of quote-unquote Lady Thor, which I will straight up admit that I first picked up just to piss off, uh, just as sort of a an FU to anyone who was just like, that's not the real Thor. Um, but, you know, across the board, the storylines, I've, I've really enjoyed them. Uh, I love the way that they've integrated uh, Asgard into the rest of the Marvel Universe. Um, you know, you've got, uh, there's one thing that I was reading where it's like you've got Odin working both alongside and against the Phoenix Force. Uh, so they've basically taken Asgard and plugged it in as a very functional component of the Marvel Galaxy as a whole. But at the same time, it has never lost its very powerful Norse flavor. Like, the fact that frequently Thor still speaks in these and thous, even as he's dealing, you know, even as... Uh, um, you know, as either he or she is like fighting off, like uh, fighting off Roxxon, um, you know, the most thinly veiled, uh, you know, allegory for, uh, for a rapacious oil company that I've ever heard in my life. Um, but you know, he's, you know, he'll be like in a room, like with computers and, uh, and all sorts of electronics and technology, and he's fighting against an oil company, but he'll still be speaking in these and thous. I love that. Uh, and by and large, they make it work. Um, so I will say, at least based on the past 10, 15 years, the Thor aspect of the universe is incredibly rich to me. Yeah, there are some differences, of course, with Thor in the comics. The main difference in Thor, who's introduced in uh, Journey introdu in Journey into Mystery 83, um, uh, which is referenced in this film. Um, in the 60s, the plot of Thor was essentially there was uh, someone named Dr. Donald Blake, who is ref referenced in mm -hmm. this film, uh, who uh, who finds the hammer and and he can use the hammer to turn into Thor. Um, it's sort of Shazam, right? It's the same idea as Shazam. Yeah. Uh, he has a regular life, but if he needs to, he can turn himself into a completely different person with a completely different personality. It's, it, there's aspects of the Hulk there, too. Um, and then turns back into Donald Blake and he is to share his life with Thor. Uh, later, it is revealed mm -hmm. in the comics that Donald Blake was, in fact, Thor the whole time. But Odin had made him forget who he was um, in order for mm -hmm. him to exist on Earth. 
Um, and that was that was Thor in in the comics as he started out. Um, as time has gone on, Thor has come to resemble much more the Thor that we uh, that we have here. Um, but they really pared down a lot of it to get it into one big story. And I have to say they present a lot of it. Jane Foster is part of the comics. Um, the uh, the stuff with Odin and with Loki is part of the comics. The Frost Giants are part of the comic. Just like they, if you think about how much they introduced over the course of two hours, it's they've really mm-hmm. pared down to to its purest essence. It's the orange juice concentrate of presenting a. If you think about the the like the lineage of narrative, it's Norse gods as interpreted by Marvel Comics, boiled down to to their most comic book form for that. And then that gets boiled down to this concentrated version of Thor. Um, there's so much to work with. It's, it's odd that this can consi- this movie is sort of considered to be one of the lesser Marvel movies, considering everything that it manages to, um, to achieve. And I want to mm-hmm. give props to Kenneth Branagh. Parts of this film are spectacularly fun there are going to be criticisms that I have later, but I think that, you know, for those of you who don't know Kenneth Branagh, um, of course, Arthur and I know Kenneth Branagh because we, you know, we met Shakespeare brought Arthur and I together. It's how we found each other is through Shakespeare, um, which my eighth grade son is, uh, is now studying. And I'm like, Ooh, I know this. Um, Romeo and Juliet is actually, is actually what he's reading. And I was like, Oh my gosh, I play Tybalt Romeo and Juliet to a vastly inferior Romeo. Um, <laughs> hey son, you want uh, any help with that iambic pentameter? No, no, Dad, I'm good. I can, you know, I can do your scansion, right? Are you, are you making sure you're, you're marking off your trophies? Dad, you're embarrassing yourself. Stop. Do you, do you know how cool it would be if after they did the balcony scene, we saw that Tybalt was watching it the whole time? Come on, it's a great Dad, idea. That's a dumb idea. No one would do that. <laughs> um, Kenneth Branagh is, is very famous for for doing Henry V for doing um, uh, he's known on stage and of course on screen for bringing uh, for bringing multiple uh, Shakespearean properties to screen Uh, modern audiences would know him best as an actor of course for um, for his role as Gilderoy Lockhart in the second Harry Potter Harry Potter which was perfect casting Um, he is an acclaimed director Um, it's it's an interesting choice and also I think maybe a correct choice and that he's directed battles he directed Henry V he's directed uh, non Shakespeare things he's got a a great movie called Dead Again um, which is worth oh that's such a good film if you anyone who enjoyed um, Knives Out you would enjoy Dead Again yeah um, he is good with heightened material and this has to be um, very heightened in terms of, of the Asgardian stuff um, I think that he manages, you know, again, I don't know much as him and, or Kevin Feige, but again, uh, casting is, is almost universally perfect. We'll talk about where maybe it falls down, but, but the casting of this movie is just phenomenal. I can't imagine anybody else in these roles now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, uh, so I think that uh, that being said, we've sort of done a tale of the tape and it's been a, it's been a, a large, uh, a large tape. We'll go through the actors and their characters. Of course, the list of actors I didn't do, which I normally do, which is Chris Helmsworth, Natalie Portman, Tom Hiddleston, Stellan Skarsgård, Colm Fiore, Ray Stevenson, Idris Elba, Kat Dennings, Renee Russo and Anthony Hopkins. And there are people we're still not even mentioning. Um, but mm-hmm. for now, uh, if you could do me a favor, please, Arthur, verily, 
Could you tell me, sir, what is thy what what is thy interpretation of the plot of Thor? Ooh, I'm very impressed. You used correct conjugation there. Well done. Uh, yea, verily, what follows is a retelling of the epic tale of one Thor, god of thunder. So, first things first, all the Norse gods are actually real. The realm of Asgard, uh, which is a realm more definitively more advanced than our own humble Midgard, otherwise known as Earth, is home to King Odin and his two sons, Thor and Loki. The peace in Asgard is threatened when a small band of frost giants from Jotunheim, which is another realm on the world tree, which has nine realms in it. It's called Yggdrasil. And you know what? Just like I said at the beginning of the podcast, just, just read this stuff. It's, it's very interesting. Anyway, some frost giants sneak into the palace to try to steal back an artifact that Odin took from them in a war centuries earlier. The frost giants are defeated, but young Thor, heir to the throne, is enraged. Despite Odin's very clear instructions not to. He gathers a band of friends and travels to Jotunheim via the Rainbow Bridge so he can feel like a butt-kicking badass. In so doing, he sets off a war between the two realms. Odin is furious and casts Thor into exile, stripping him of his powers, most especially his magic hammer, Mjolnir. He banishes Thor to Earth and throws Mjolnir into the Rainbow Bridge as well. It crashes into the New Mexico desert, remaining firmly rooted until it can be lifted by whomever is worthy. Thor also winds up in the New Mexico desert, where he is immediately run over by Dr. Jane Foster, a scientist studying astral anomalies. She and her team take Thor to the hospital and eventually back to their office. Thor asks them to take him to the site where Mjolnir has crashed down, but they are initially skeptical of the whole I'm a god thing and say no dice. However, suddenly S.H.I.E.L.D. shows up and confiscates all of Dr. Foster's research in the interests of national security. Despite doc uh, desperate, Dr. Foster agrees to take Thor to the S.H.I.E.L.D. installation that has hastily been built around Mjolnir. He fights his way past several highly trained soldiers, including one particular arrow sniper, to reach the hammer, only to discover that he can no longer lift it. He is unworthy. Broken, he surrenders into S.H.I.E.L.D. custody. In captivity, he is visited by his brother Loki, who informs him that Odin was so grief-stricken about exiling him and the war he started that Odin straight-up died. So, Loki is now king, and also Thor can never return. Dr. Foster and her team manage to convince a highly skeptical Phil Coulson, hey Phil Coulson, to release Thor to their custody. A penitent Thor expresses to Dr. Foster how he realizes how arrogant he has been. The two bond as he tells her about his home. They're clearly falling for each other. Meanwhile, back in Asgard, it turns out that Odin is not dead, but has succumbed to the Odin sleep, which is a periodic period of rejuvenation that Odin must enter into. It originally related to Odin's time being hung on the summer tree. And you know what? Just, just read the mythology. Loki has discovered that he is actually the son of Laufey, the frost giant king, stolen away by Odin during the last war. He clearly has some mischievous machinations going on. He lures Laufey to Asgard with the promise of killing Odin, only to backstab him at the last moment. Oh, that's so Loki. Thor's friends, unhappy with Loki's sudden and suspicious ascent to the throne, head to Midgard to bring Thor back. But when Loki discovers their treachery, he sends the Destroyer after them, a giant metal suit of armor that can disintegrate with its gaze. Thor, still powerless, shows his new colors by focusing solely on getting the innocent in town to safety, while his friends combat the beast. The Destroyer quickly wipes the floor with them, however and Thor realizes that the only way to stop it is to give him what he came for. He approaches the Destroyer and speaks to Loki, who he knows is listening. He apologizes for any way that he hurt his brother and begs him to spare the life of everyone else. 
The Destroyer responds by delivering a savage backhand. He dies in Dr. Foster's arms. Or so we think. Turns out that such a level of self-sacrifice makes you, what's the word? Oh yes, worthy. Out in the desert, Mjolnir takes flight, zipping into Thor's suddenly outstretched hand as his powers are returned to him. The God of Thunder makes short work of the Destroyer, and then heads back to Asgard to deal with his brother, promising Dr. Foster he'll return. In Asgard, he has a final conflict with Loki, as his brother tries to use the power of the Rainbow Bridge to destroy all of Jotunheim, because man, his daddy issues are complicated. Horrified at the thought of destroying an entire world, Thor finds himself fighting to protect the very realm that he invaded before. He destroys the Rainbow Bridge, even knowing that in doing so he destroys the only way he can get back to Earth and Jane. Loki falls off the edge of Asgard into space, lost, but one wonders for how long. The film ends with Thor reconciling with a now-awakened Odin. All is well in Asgard. He speaks with Heimdall, the all-seeing keeper of the ex-Rainbow Bridge, who tells him that Dr. Foster is still on Earth, redoubling her scientific efforts, now with S.H.I.E.L.D.'s help, and she searches for a way for the two to be reunited. Fiend. There's so much here. There's so much going on. Uh, this film comes in with a 77% on Rotten Tomatoes, an audience score of 76%, to back in a time when things tended to kind of agree. Um, the good reviews say things uh, like, like that there's... There's an epicness to it that it expands the universe, that it creates the universe. Um, that Kenneth Branagh does a great job. There, it's interesting where where there are some reviews that say everything in Asgard is amazing, but then when we get to Earth, it stumbles. And there's a re review right next to it that literally says Asgard is is stilted and and unnatural. But when they get to the Earth, the movie shines. Um, <laughs> I think that I think that this film is helped by its context. And where you realize where they take all of these characters, it is it is much like, you know, I hate to always go back to Star Trek, but like the first season of Deep Space Nine, I thought was OK. And then I watched all of Deep Space Nine and you see where it all goes. And now when I watch the first season, I see all the pieces getting set up on the board mm -hmm. that I'm going to see later. I think that this film yeah. benefits. If seen as a chapter its, one, it's it's very good. Yeah. And it, and and. On its own, I can see how people would go, there's so much, it's so, I don't know, how, uh, Loki's pretty good, but now that I know how Thor and Loki's relationship is going to be, watching this is captivating now. If Thor, if they had mm -hmm. never made Thor or never released Thor, and then they released Thor now as a prequel to the other things that have come out, I would find this mm. captivating and awesome. Um, uh, I have to say that on my rewatch, on my rewatch, I found that I liked it far more than I remembered liking it. Um, mm -hmm. And that the context of every, everywhere that it goes just adds to the enjoyment of this film, fills, fills in the spaces, uh, so to speak. The other thing I, I thought to myself when I was listening to you say that, there's a lot of stuff happening here, right? Am I wrong? <laughs> you know, as, I, as I'm going back through it, this film does a very good job of actually keeping two parallel storylines going on. Uh, I mean, ironically, both Thor and Loki go through major journeys. Um, it's not, this story doesn't just follow Thor. Like, even when Thor is cast to Earth, there's still a lot of time spent back in Asgard dealing with what's going on there. Uh, you know, it's for a film that, as I said, somehow feels a little smaller. Now that I think about it, there's still, there's a lot going on. You say two, and I'm gonna I'm gonna postulate 
even more to you here. We have, of course, the story of Thor. We're following Thor. But that's really two stories. It's the story of, of Thor and Asgard, which is Thor and Loki and Odin and how he relates to them and whether or not he's going to assume the mantle of king. But there's also Thor on Earth, which is kind of a romantic comedy. Um, yeah, it's sort of a it's sort it's almost like a, a a Hugh Grant movie where 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 Hugh Grant is 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 a bit of a is a bit of a dick, but then Hugh Grant learns like it, this is a Hugh Grant movie. Um, it's that kind of it's that and, kind of awkward funny. Yeah, uh, yeah, where 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 he's awkward and and you get to see you know that that he's really got a soft side inside because of of you know, of, of how, you know, kind of a jerk he is, but then, you know, it's fun to watch him do pratfalls and fall over. So there's that. Mm -hmm. It's also the Loki story of, as you, as you said, Loki having a coup, all, all the sort of the, the, the politics and it's like a soap opera. What's happening with Loki. Oh, it's a different father than yeah. you thought it was. Oh no, I left you for dead. Oh, I didn't know who you were. Oh, there's, it's very soap opera ish going on in Asgard. So there are three, but you also have mm -hmm. in the midst of it, it is the story of of Jane, who has not served super well. I think that it does. I think that we talked about casting issues when we get to the characters at the very end of, of this review. We'll talk about how we feel about Natalie Portman in this. I feel like this is not what she's best at. I like her in it, but she's better at other things than this. Um, mm -hmm. uh, but there is the story of of almost like the E.T. story of, of scientists finding things. But in the midst of the, mm -hmm. all of this, of those four stories that we just described, this is also the first time that you see S.H.I.E.L.D. in all its yeah. glory. And, you know, S.H.I.E.L.D. is mentioned and shows up to help as like five or six guys at the end of the first Iron Man. And S.H.I.E.L.D. is sort of something that's just happening in the background. They tell you S.H.I.E.L.D.'s super powerful and S.H.I.E.L.D. has hired uh, Black Widow and Coulson's doing stuff. And, and you know, the Avenger Nation, that's all Iron Man 2 stuff. Um, you see S.H.I.E.L.D. show up, uh, you, you see the, the military show up with Stark Industry stuff in The Incredible Hulk. This is the first time you think, S.H.I.E.L.D. has a base camp, S.H.I.E.L.D. has a bunch of guys, S.H.I.E.L.D. has people that mm -hmm. they've hired. Like, you see S.H.I.E.L.D. in all its glory for the first time in this film. And this and doesn't it's, it's seem also like a the movie first time where that we see... S.H.I.E.L.D. would exist. Yeah, it, it's also the first time that we see the dark side of S.H.I.E.L.D. too, as sort of the jackbooted government thugs. Yeah, um... And and it's you know, when I think of Thor, I don't think of Thor as being the first real appearance of Shield. I think that's a Captain America movie, but it's not. It's this. They're here, and mm -hmm. all their glory is Shield. You have Coulson, and by the end of the movie, Nick Fury showing up in this movie. This this movie is the is the kind of the first appearance of the Tesseract, because the Tesseract yeah. appears at the at the end of this film, um, and. It's setting up the end. So in its own way, it's starting to set up the Infinity Stones. Um, this is such a, a a full and rich movie. It's weird to think that at the time I would ever have thought, oh, this movie is small. Because it seems mm -hmm. like every scene in this movie is crucial for the MCU. Um, I think I, the, the best way that I can think about it, it's maybe perhaps small, isn't it? But it's like it feels because it's dealing with such epic things of such epic scope. It almost feels a little incomplete. Like ironically enough, what this film was an hour and 40 minutes. Like this is one of the very rare times that I can say, you know what? This film might've benefited from an extra 15 minutes. Um, 
you know, I've you needed. I feel like you needed maybe one more fight scene. Um, you needed uh, you needed a little bit more of Thor uh, having a realization of like right now. Thor's the thing that makes Thor realize, oh my gosh, I've been a jerk, is when he can't lift his hammer. Uh, like I would have liked a little bit more around that. Um, it only seems small in that. Thor and Asgard, even within the Marvel Universe, are extraordinarily big concepts. Yeah, and I think that, you know, I mean, let's, I mean, I guess, I guess let's go, let's go through, um, let's go through the plot for a minute and, and we can talk about where I, where I think you're correct um, and where specifically it falls down. Um, but let's talk about the Asgard plot and specifically the the battle against the frost giants which i think is the most impressive thing in the film that is um mm -hmm. it's a tense it's a tense beginning uh and watching thor wield his hammer for the first time watching him spin it around and fly with it like that that all of that the the intrigue the 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 missing son the they're going to show i you almost forget by the end of the film that the frost giants were in the first half of the film but that mm -hmm. That aspect of the film I found I found really fun, really riveting. It could have been its own movie. And I I really enjoyed what happens with the Frost Giants. I'm a little sad when it comes to an end so early. What are your thoughts about that aspect? Uh, I agree with that. It's certainly... And also, uh, it's a great way of sort of showcasing uh, something we haven't mentioned before, which is Thor's Band of Companions. Uh, they do a good job of... For the most part, they do a good job of even with just a few lines, you see the very specific different personalities of each companion because each one is sort of their own archetype uh, in their own in their own way. Uh, you know, Lady Sif is certainly uh, set up as a good character. Uh, Volstag, the uh, Volstag, the gluttonous, uh, who's a great character in the uh, in the comics. Oh man, do they do interesting things with him in the comics? Um, but he's set up really well. So there is a uh, it, it is kind of neat to see the merry band of adventurers going into an, going off on another adventure. It's a very Dungeons and Dragons sort of feel to it, uh, and I agree with you. I think the uh, I liked the I liked the combat. I it was interesting. It was probably by design that Thor was set up to be so unbelievably more powerful than his other friends. Uh, you know, it almost made you wonder would things have been any different had Thor just gone in alone uh you know the big monster that everyone else is terrified of Thor one is able to one shot that sort of thing um so there might be some party imbalance there but other than that I really enjoyed it and yeah to, to think back and say oh that's right this is the first time that we really saw okay this is how he's fighting with the hammer like I remember that was when he started spinning it now that I'm thinking back seeing it in the trail or in, in the theater uh, I got very excited about it um, the next part that I'd love to discuss is uh, the both Asgard itself and the Asgard intrigue. And we're going to to specify that is uh, I'd love to talk about. Well, let's talk first about the look of Asgard. It's so important. It's so well done um, to mm -hmm. realize Asgard on screen um, and to do it so very, very well is one of the things that I think this film doesn't get enough credit for it creates a world an immediately visually identifiable world that is different from ours 
um, that is yeah. both more advanced and less advanced. And I think that the the film, like, it doesn't seem like we're in we're in you know Norse god heaven. It just seems like it's it's this completely different thing than what we know. Um, mm-hmm. So, did you have the same? What were your thoughts on on the look and the feel of Asgard itself? I very much like. I, I loved what they did with the design of Asgard. My only question with it, and every time that they've shown Asgard in film and even in comics, is what is the what is the size and population of Asgard? Is it a large city? Is it um, you know a city and its surrounding environs? Like uh, when they, you know, when all of Asgard is loaded into, into ships at the end of uh, Thor Ragnarok, um, how many people is that? And is that number of people like when we see Asgard, you know, fully laid out before us, is that actually a large enough space to in, to encapsulate uh, all of the Asgardians? Uh, for that matter, do all Asgardians have some level of powers? Like if you went to some random commoner in the streets, would they be somehow would would they be stronger than your average human on Earth, or is it only like you know, there's some kind of ruling class in Asgard, and those are the ones with powers? Like that aspect in none of the movies. Um, and actually come to think of it, even in the comics, like that's not really fleshed out. Uh, so it, I'm left with those questions, but those questions don't get in the way of me enjoying this incredibly rich, lush visual landscape. Um, I imagine that Asgard's about the size of New York is sort of my thought, which New York is, you know, the size of some small countries. Um, yeah, New York is 8 so- million people. Yeah, so I imagine it has a few million people in a very, very large city. Um, mm-hmm. And that's why they, you can see they built up. And that's why, like, mm-hmm. I, I think i think you're talking a couple of million. In terms of their powers, I've never seen an Asgardian on Earth that didn't have power, that didn't have, not powers, but considerable strength and resilience. Um, mm-hmm. So I imagine that, you know, a, a bullet would not kill an asgardian but a um but a super powered you know hollow tip point specially designed bullet would they're not as invulnerable as superman say um mm-hmm. but they are you know they, they are certainly stronger and and th- the skin is thicker and that's sort of what i thought they're 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 like mm-hmm. they're like a hundred and uh, like 180 times as as strong as us is sort of the way I mm-hmm. always thought about it. Um, okay, about that's the entry. Specific, that's an oddly specific multiplicative. Um, regarding the the story in Asgard, again, the 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 coup, the coming to the throne, the almost Shakespearean melodrama of that, including Loki. Um, that is, it used to be that that was my favorite part of the film. I sort of started to gravitate toward the earth part but i love i just love watching tom hiddleston on screen i love watching what mm-hmm. he does i love watching the warriors three you know it's there's no part of that that i don't find interesting and i think that's really good because when you cut to a b plot in a movie often you just find yourself like that's filling time to get to help time pass on on what's happening in the a plot and to fill out the film but i really found this on its own I feel like this would have made a really interesting miniseries. Um, I really enjoy yeah. what is what is happening there, specifically um, 
the the plight and the angst of Odin of Loki. It's why Loki is, in my opinion, the best villain in the entire MCU. You? Mm-hmm. Uh, I agree with that. The uh, I mean, yeah. The we'll get more into into the the very excellent job that most of the actors do with the roles later on. Um, but yeah, again, with Asgard, they took something that could have been very cookie cutter and made it uh, much richer. Um, before we move on to some of the other story elements and everything, I do want to give a particular shout out uh, to the music in this. Uh, and the uh, and because you know you know me, I'm always I'm always gravitating towards the soundtracks and films. Uh, the composer for this was Patrick Doyle, which when I found out that Kenneth Branagh was directing uh, Thor, my first guess was I said well clearly Patrick Doyle is going to be doing the music for it uh, Patrick Doyle has done all of Kenneth Branagh's other films Henry V Hamlet um, he is I don't know if he's still considered this but certainly in the 90s and uh, the aughts he was pretty much the British composer um, the uh, you know and he's got a very particular style which uh, involves very regal sounding French horns and uh you know, and violins. Uh, it is it is no uh, coincidence that when I pick music to be used for uh, you know the soundtrack to you know the the ultimate joust that we have at the end of every season of the Pennsylvania Renaissance Fair, I have used a lot of Patrick Doyle. Um, in fact, I'm pretty certain that uh, more than a few knights have actually ridden into the joust lists to Thor's theme. Uh, this was Patrick Doyle at some of his best. Uh, you know there were very specific themes that were uh, that were introduced for characters uh, that continued and had variances, um, and certainly it is a style of music that reflected Asgard incredibly well. Uh, like I love Hans Zimmer, uh, but his style I think would not have worked as well for Asgard uh, because it's got sort of a little bit more of a modern uh, a modern flair to it. Uh, so this is a, a shout out to Doyle for the excellent work on the music of the film. I, I, the only thing I have to add to it is I was looking him up while we were talking. Um, and he has, if he had done nothing other than the score to 1981's Chariots of Fire, that would be enough for somebody's entire life. Um, yeah. Be, because Chariots of Fire is one of the most memorable tunes of the entire decade. Um, mm-hmm. but if you go through, it's, it's just all the way through. He did a Harry Potter. He did the planet of the apes. He did, you know, Aragon. He did, um, you just, I mean, you go through all of it. Cinderella, um, you know, it's, he's continuing to work. He's do, this year he's doing Artemis Fowl and death on the Nile, both directed by Kenneth Branagh. This oh, year. that's perfect. Um, yeah. so in the, the last aspect that I want to talk about regarding the plot is, um, is what's happening on earth. Um, it is a smaller story. I love the comedy of it. Um, but I really appreciate the story of Thor and of all things, the moment when he tries to lift the hammer oh, is it's beautiful. You know, we, we've talked before about, about stories leading to points. This is just a story about a, a guy trying to pick up a hammer. He's just trying to pick up a hammer. Mm-hmm. And he goes, he kneels on the ground, he attempts to pick up the hammer, and he fails. It is to the story's credit that that moment is so gut-wrenching. Because that moment on its own is a nothing moment. 
but the story sets mm-hmm. up the the gut wrenching nature. The performance is perfect. The man is looks like a god when he's trying to do it. The rain, the the Hawkeye watching him, um, which is a great way to introduce him. Shield all around it. Like all the story elements are are spinning and buzzing and creating the MCU around him. And yet, in the moment he tries to lift that hammer, my heart breaks with and for him. And mm-hmm. and. I love that. Um, and then, of course, the the comedy and the friendship elements, his relationship with Selvig, the going out drinking, him getting knocked out over and over again. Um, it's all it's it's kind of it, it's just kind of lovely. And this time around, I found myself gravitating toward when he was on Earth, just going, I'm just digging that. Um, I want to talk about the battle on Earth at the end on its own. But what is uh, what is your feeling about the Earth story? Uh I agree with you in all those things. Certainly, it uh, a lot of the most lighthearted moments came from it. I mean, we all remember the sort of uh, the very uh, the iconic um, him drinking the coffee at the diner and then smashing it on the floor like that. I think that was the moment where I actually started liking the character uh, because it was so just adorable in its own way. Um, I think it's interesting uh, that, and I I totally see why they did it. Um, but Jane Foster in the comics is not an astrophysicist. Uh, she is, uh, I think in some iterations, a nurse in others, a doctor. Um, actually, uh, there's this beautiful thing that, uh, Marvel Unlimited has done, uh, in the past month. It, when you open the app, it will do like, there's usually a splash screen that they show of like some hero or another. And for the past month, what they've done is they show, uh, Jane Fo- is that the splash screen is just of Jane Foster and Doctor Strange, but both of them in their actual medical scrubs, uh, which I just think oh, is a, nice. a wonderfully touching, yeah, uh, touching. That's it, neither here nor there. Um, but you know the. So yeah, I, I, I'm not. I'm not entirely sure why they why they took Jane away from the medical track, um, although. That being said, her being a an astrophysicist, it certainly doesn't weaken the character at all. Uh, and I do kind of like the, I do like the almost uh, father daughter relationship that she has with the, uh, I forget his name, but Skarsgård's character, um, Eric Selvig. And uh, yeah, so and certainly they use him in the fu- in in future iterations too. Um, I like the the chemistry between uh, between. Uh, Foster and Thor um, but again it's sort of the I just I feel like it could have used just a little bit more I agree um, uh, the the last thing I want to talk about um, regarding all this is the battle at the end um, and I, not so much the battle on the Rainbow Bridge which was fine it was, it was lovely uh, but the where the film falls down I think is the climactic battle against essentially a giant robot that blows up a Seven Eleven. it seems mm-hmm. lesser for an MCU film. And it is well, the one it's... part where I feel the film feels clunky. It stumbles. It seems like, like this is, it really feels like this is about all we could afford for this. Um, and mm. I yeah, well, and usually don't feel, you, you feel get that the sense that they like kind of, they, and it would have been one thing except that they'd started with such an epic battle in Jotunheim. Yeah, and it didn't uh, feel like 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 the town was sparse. There weren't very many extras. 
there were it seemed like like it seemed like it was just a studio back lot that they were setting some fires on and it was mm-hmm. it was a, it's an unfortunate ding on the film um which i think is otherwise really good um next yeah. week we are going to talk about uh the characters in thor we're going to tell you whether or not we liked it and we're going to talk about uh, uh our big idea but for now my name is justin and my name is arthur and forsooth true believers stayeth thou super now that you've finished the show, be sure to subscribe so that you never miss an episode of the Totally Super Podcast. Also, if you like this, you should head over to geeksradio.com or search Geeks Radio wherever you listen to podcasts. There you can find Trek Off, the not safe for work Star Trek podcast with Justin and Alexia. So search for Trek Off, search for Pop Off, search for Geeks Radio, and just thanks for joining us. This has been a presentation of Enlight Entertainment. 